As we were studying, studying David's life and the heart of David as known as a, a man after God's own heart, today is a critical juncture. So uh, turn with me, if you have a Bible with you, to 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Uh, my text today is actually two full chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. But I'd like to start with this portion of scripture so that we know the relevance of it and, and anticipate what's about to come. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and the king David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So if you have been following along uh, David's series, you know that long, long time ago, we began the study with David being anointed by Samuel, the prophet, as a teenager, shepherd boy. And it was a private a family gathering, so all Israel didn't hear about it. But in the battle against the Philistines, David became a national hero because of his courage. He went out to defeat ninety giant Goliath. And from that point on, David waited more than 10 years, not just sitting around waiting, but being chased by King Saul, who was jealous, who almost went crazy, obsessed about that. And after that, when southern part of Israel, the tribe of Judah, only one tribe of the 12 tribes, anointed him king over Judah, the southern part. And he then waited seven and a half years. And then finally, the northern third, 11 tribes came and anointed him today. This is the coronation day of King David over united Israel now. And today, 
we want to be mindful about God speaking to us in the 21st century and today to each one of us as his people. The relevance is monumental. The title of today's message and ceremony is David's Leadership that United People of God. Another, another way of putting it is, what is the lesson from King David, not in the monarchy, not even the political role only, but in everyday Christian leadership, everyday leadership lessons, if you and I are practiced to leadership that comes and approve, is approved by God. So it's a leadership lesson. At the same time, I think uh, one might just check it off as, oh, not for me because I'm not a leader. I don't have what it takes to be a leader. But if you think about leadership as an influence, even within your home as as a mom, you have a leadership influence over your kids. Even at your work, with your little team, you have an influence. So in your work and service at church, you could think about it as an application. It's wide. We're introduced to three stories in this chapter, so chapter 4 and chapter 5. One story is before David became king of all Israel. And two stories right after, immediately after. There are actually three stories, three things David did right away as he became a king of all Israel. But the third story is too long and, and too important, so we're going to set apart for the next, next Sunday. Let's look at this overview so that we would not be misguided and in reading and understanding the story, uh, stories today. Uh, my attention uh, for this story is David as Israel's king, not just a monarch, but as a type of the messianic king. By that I mean he foreshadows Christ, Jesus the king, who it will be, the King of kings and Lord of lords in the eternal kingdom of God. So what's the uniqueness of Israel's king? That's my question. First of all, Israel wants to be ruled by God. Uh, When you think about the word theocracy, that God is governing the whole it is a form of a theocracy, but until the, the times of judges. But when Israel's wanted actually king whom they can see, mainly because other nations are strong and they're just getting tired of being, getting invaded and taken advantage. We need a strong king who would lead us. But Israel king was different. Because when you think about Still, the ultimate king was God. 
But God uses a human servant king for his kingdom. And this is why David is a type of Christ and Israel is type of future eternal kingdom of God. Secondly, King Saul, the first king of Israel, failed to be God's servant king. Essentially, although he seemingly started right, but essentially because he tried to use God for his own purpose rather than serving God as his ultimate purpose. You see, who is the center is the big question. God needed a human king as his servant to rule over as an extension of God's authority. There's a huge responsibility But as King Saul experienced his political power, he thought that he was the center, and God is a means to an end. He rejected God and disobeyed God, and in turn, God rejected him as king. And David was chosen as, called as a man after God's own heart. My own heart, God says. So today, uh, David becomes the servant king of God's united people, Israel, as a type of Christ, the king of the eternal kingdom of God. Someday, we'll see Jesus, the king. Not just the temporary king, but the eternal king. And forever, we will dwell as believers, co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God. When God's rule and reign is not limited, right now it's a Christ came and God's kingdom came already, but not yet. The consummation the fully blown God's reign has not come. That's why there's a evil and suffering and other things. On that day, there will be no more tears, no more death, and no more unrighteousness, no more injustice. God will reign forever and we will rule Believers will rule as co-heirs with Christ Jesus. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? But this story brings out, it's almost like a seed in the New Testament, Old Testament. So looking at Old Testament, we will not be able to see the whole thing. The fruit comes in the New Testament. Lastly, In all this, David, as a man after God's own heart, offers us, this is the important part, not an example of perfect life. David is a type of Christ, but he is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. 
He is not perfect. And we've seen that already, David's mishaps and shortcomings. We will see more, even greater sins. Uh, even becoming king, he, we could see some of his mistakes as well. But his example is an example of faith. What do I mean by that? And this is an important part. Because the reason why God is God of grace, undeserved, free gift of God, bestowed on all who believe, faith in the definition of God's grace and biblical picture is actually having relationship, right relationship with God. Which means when you fall, the most important thing is truly repent. When David sinned, he sinned greatly. And not only just mistakes, but this is an apex of his success and glory today in these coming weeks. But soon we will see the trauma of his own sin and the ramification of his sinful and dysfunctional family. So what it means is that we learn from David as a, not as a perfect person, a moralistic, just try hard and grit, you know, become, I got to do better thing. But as a person who knows how to connect and how to be restored, how to experience God's forgiveness and God's empowerment, God's favor in a cycle of transformations. The last Sunday, we talked about the characteristics of biblical narrative, Old Testament narrative. One of the key characteristics is that the character, characters of the biblical narratives are not like a cartoon character or fairy tale heroes. They're always good or they're always bad. In the real life, David has his shortcomings and David has it's great strength. David is a great leader overall. So what does, it, what does it give us? It gives us, first of all, comfort. Sometimes when you look at some people who never fail, what do you feel like? I can't be that. I have too much imperfection and brokenness in me. But behind the curtains, everything's shown together. Everyone has brokenness. But some people recover from it. Some people stand up again seven times when, it, when, they, when they fall down. So that is exciting thing about David's stories. And our focus happens to be what does it look like if a Christian, a believer, 
exercise faith in leadership, uh, not, in, not in a way that dichotomized of uh, faith here and my work and business or, or leadership here, separate thing. What does it look like when it's synergized, when it's synchronized? So as I said, three stories helps us to learn from David. The first story happens right before he became king over all Israel. The story is I entitled as uh, dealing with Ishibosheth's death. Who is Ishbosheth? He's the king of Israel for seven and a half years, a fourth son of King Saul, while David was king over Judah in southern part. And then something very human, very ugly thing happens. Starting with verse 5. Now, the sons of Rimon, the Beorite, Rechab, and Bana set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishibosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And when they came, to, came into the, in the, midst, the, in the midst of the house as if to, to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishibosheth, the, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And notice the spiritual religious language here. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. But David answered, Rechab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Beorite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him as Ziklag. This is 1 Samuel chapter 31, remember? Young Amalekite which was the reward that I gave him for his, for his news. He thought that he was bringing bad news, I mean good news, but David genuinely grieved and lamented for the, the death of King Saul, along with his best friend and his son, Jonathan. How much more, verse 11, when wicked men have killed a righteous man, in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them. 
and cut off their hands and feet and hang them beside the pool, of, pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Fascinating, isn't it? Just like the Amalekites, they really thought and rationalized because the prophecy on David, this is a right thing to do. We are helping. But what was their motive? A reward. If we bring the head of Ishibosheth, the king of Israel, it's game over. David will be glad and he could become king of all Israel as God purposed him to be. It's a mixed with a you know, different motives there. But ultimately, we will become great as a reward. Maybe we will become a commanders in, their, in, in David's kingdom. But as you all know, what happened to the young Amalekite, David didn't go along this time either. And he calls for justice for the wicked deeds, unrighteous deeds. But when you really think about this, the pragmatic way, American way, they made it easy for David. It was possible now that David to become king of all Israel because there is no more king in Israel. Northern part. It benefited him. Why? Can you do that? On the spot when well-meaning people, so-called friends, are doing wicked deeds to help you and to look for opportunity in the process for them? On the spot, it will be awfully difficult unless your center, life center, is to live before God. This is a David's secret here. His leadership began from the living lifestyle before God. He feared the Lord. He cared about what God sees. So in spite of pragmatism, David would choose to wait seven and a half years, and even this point, he would not go along with their plan, that he would wait until people become convinced in God's timing. What a wonderful example that is. Does this happen in Christian circles these days? Christian businessmen? I'm really heartbroken to say even in churches, even in leadership in the churches, this doesn't happen all the time. Rarely I see the integrity 
Well, I'm not pointing to different fingers, different people. I'm pointing to myself. I still remember the mixed motive back in my previous ministry. And my big motto, motto of the ministry operative is this. Got to make it happen. You can't sit around. Make things happen for God. And then, our means become blurry in terms of, is this right way? Is this righteous way? Uh, just, it's for the glory of God. That's the end. Justify means. By all means, no. Second story. So as he waited, he became, the first part we already read, uh, the elders from northern 11 tribes came, anointed David as a king. And the first thing that he does is conquering Jerusalem as the first project of king of united Israel. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will word you off. Thinking David cannot come in here, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Uh, Two names just mentioned, and they're all equivalent word with Jerusalem. Zion shows up the first time in the Old Testament. Zion, nobody knows what really clearly means, but seems to be within the the region of city of Jerusalem. There was a fortress, and they called it Zion. But later on, Zion become equivalent word for Jerusalem. And then because of this conquer, conquest, and people start calling that city the city of David. And because also the holy city, it's also known as city of God. So there's several names that meaning the same thing. Back to verse 8. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft and to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. And therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the, come into ho- to the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it, called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, and also carpenters and mansions, who built 
David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammuah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Elinada, and Elifleth. So did you just see that? that there's mixed things going on. Uh, uh, let me just mention the first thing. The biblical narratives let's tell us what happens without even mentioning of approval or disapproval. What happened? This is one of the things. He took more wives. I mean... If we count every, every wives and concubines of David, we, nobody knows a clear number, but eight of them are clearly mentioned. But if you hear what goes on from David's dysfunctional family because of all these David's freedom, uh, back in the days, this is a sign of a powerful king. It's a common practice. But this part... David didn't turn to God. David exercised his, his power and his, he, he thought that his right privilege. But what happens is one of his king, one of his sons uh, from one wife rapes another daughter from another wife and his, her brother Absalom gets ticked off and murders him in revenge. And then it goes on and on. And Absalom revolts against David, his own father. And he had to run away from his palace. And all sufferings and pain David endured because of all that. His life is tainted by this pain in the family. You see, one quick example, I mean, the lesson that we could draw from it, simply God seems to allow us to do whatever we feel like doing. And that doesn't mean God approves it. David's sense of his, his moral compass <laughs> wasn't God's righteous or God's unrighteousness going on. But what happens? Even in our own family life, if some parts of our lives are uh, more self-directed, and then we think of it as our own privilege, we are going to reap what we saw. 
But coming back to the David's leadership, why is this important? Jerusalem has been, in their history, notorious. All these years, even the, when they came into Canaan, they could not conquer Jerusalem. And among them, it was almost impossible to think of that. Why? Jerusalem is strategically high ground. It's easy to defend, but it's almost impossible to attack because you are so exposed and there is no other way. So that's why Jebusites, the inhabitants of that city at that time, mocked. This is a tent. You cannot come in here. Even the blind and lame of our people can wore you off. And David got ticked off, basically, right? So this is not actually demeaning things for handicapped people. David hated, hated any, any, anyone who is abnormal. Not true. But there is a contrasting picture of what Jesus did with the blind and lame and what went on in the Old Testament and even in the temple as well. But what, one thing that is clear is that one of the stories that we will encounter is David and Mephibosheth. Who is Mephibosheth? He was the person who is lame. A handicap who couldn't walk because of his accident in his younger days, who happens to be son of Jonathan. Remember, David and Jonathan made a covenant with each other as a friend. David invites Mephibosheth, the lame, to sit and eat at king's table for the rest of his life. So, uh, as much as uh, it's an argumentative or a controversial kind of ambiguous thing going on, but one thing that we know clearly is that the coming Messiah, Jesus, was so clear. He honored the lame and blind, blind in the kingdom of God. And even in David's part here, is a, a mocking of the Jebusites. And some scholars will say the blind and lame will not be able to come into the house. Meant Jebusites cannot be in his palace anymore. But and yet, there is other the examples of the temples forbidden blind and lames to come into the holy presence of God. In the Old Testament uh, Law. So it is contrasting with what the real messianic king did. Different. But the point that we need to draw from is that David's men were trained, and David himself, those seven and a half years, more more so. 
12, 10 to 12 years, altogether 20 years of waiting was not nothing. These became valiant warriors. These warriors. We don't have this text, but if you look to the equivalent text of 1 Chronicles chapter 11, there's another David's quote on David. Whoever goes through the worship, it's a water tunnel, right? Some kind of the wall, the high, high wall, and it's too difficult. So you need to go through this water tunnel. Maybe it's some kind of a very uh, difficult way to the animal, animals and the rats will go through that. And if you go with your courage and we take over this city, I will make you, that person, chief. Who went in? Joab. And then Joab, as we know, became chief commander of Israel's army. So this impossibility when David took it, not because of his skill only, but because of his sign of his God's presence upon his kingship, Jerusalem was conquered. Why Jerusalem, you say? Remember, his capital city was used to be Hebron, which is the southern part in the Judah. To way too southern for United Kingdom. The Manahaim, the, the capital of Israel, northern Israel, used to be even further north, but Jerusalem is right in the middle. And Jerusalem becomes a strategic city, and not only in terms of battle against other nations, but also it becomes a holy city. As you know, the Messianic king came and he died on the cross for all mankind there. The second thing that he did was a dealing with the Philistines. Oh, sorry about that. I forgot to read. The defeating of the Philistines, meaning, um, do you remember that David used to live a double life in Ziklag, in land of Philistine, uh, as a way to survive in, uh, in the pursuit of King Saul. And what he was doing was basically uh, he acted like he was serving Achish, the king of Philistine, in Gath. And one city-state, uh, Philistines have five city-states. So up until now, David was kind of ambiguous. And he, when he became a king over Judah, uh, he I guess he finally showed his card, but in that he's not truly our threat to our nation, Philistines thought. But when they heard uh, David became king over all Israel, now 
he becomes a real threat. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard and David, that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard, it, heard of it and went down to, to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them too into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Parazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before, before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of the, Lord, name of the place is called Baal Parazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to, the, to their rear, and came against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of balsam tree, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the, the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Giva to Gizer. Up until this point, historically, Philistines were much stronger, much powerful, much advanced even their, their armors too. But this becomes a turning point. David turned the tide with Philistines from this point on. And from this point on, Philistines cannot touch them. What a glorious victory that he brings. But what does he do? Uh, we have valiant men. We are strong enough. We even conquered Jerusalem. Oh, let's go and get them. David inquires of the Lord first, seeking God's guidance, praying first, then do accordingly. He does it again. And when David was with him, I mean, the, when God was, the, was with him, everything seemed so easy. This is a difference between self-effort and God's favor upon us as a byproduct and, and fruit of our Pursuit of God and God's kingdom first. There are three lessons as we close. And I want to be brief about that, but very clear. Uh, let's make three marks of David's leadership as our motto. 
The first mark of David's leadership was that he was a servant to God first with the fear of the Lord and for God's glory. In other words, David was not king first and maybe secondly servant to God. He, David was servant to God first. In today's passage, this stands out, isn't it? Uh, chapter 5, verse 12. And David knew, acknowledged, that the Lord has had established him king over Israel. Not circumstances, not anything else, not his own wisdom or strategy. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. What, what are we to learn? We need to learn David's posture as a first thing first. What is the first thing first? In your own career, in your office, as a manager, as an executive, as a leader? Are you VP first? Are you a teacher first? Are you a doctor first? Are you a lawyer first? Are you an engineer first? Then miss maybe secondly trying to serve God? Or are you a servant first? Before your CEO, before your CFO, before your doctor, before your lawyer, before your engineer, before your driver, before you are a student. In your sphere of influence, I might as well, importantly, because we need to retain the saltiness of Christ in church before I am the lead pastor of this church. I'm a servant to God. And it's very elementary. But when you steer just a few degrees wrong direction. In years to come, the ramification of the wrong angle, we become a different leader. So I long for this. That our people in your own field, in your service at church, and in your te- as a, you, leading teams at, at church, as well as in your career. They will look to God. I do not answer to my bosses and my, my people, even myself. I answer to God. What matters is that I serve Him. Therefore, my chief end and purpose is not my success. It's God's glory. Is there a temptation? Yes. Because, you know, the previous ministry, the number-wise and church-wise, is one of the largest churches around town. And growing churches in multi-sites and everything. And then first thing that I get to ask when we go to some kind of conference or church gathering How big is your church? How many people do you have? Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. 
But me, me getting, wow, I never thought about this as a you know, benchmarker for everywhere. And I initially, leading this church plan, I felt a little bit kind of embarrassed even to say how many people we have. I remember the times that today, today seems to be a little better. Past few uh, Sundays when our families were taking vacation and everything. Where's everybody? It's whole empty right in the middle after kids leave. Temptation is there. But will I look to God first? If God says, I approve what you're doing, will you be satisfied? If we are really aware of what goes on, of paying attention to God, we will. But we end up paying attention to what people say, what others say. You're not just a homemaker and mom, staying home mom. You are a servant to God. And he has given you kingdom assignment, which has a monumental importance of raising godly children who will be godly leaders of the nations later as well as for the church. Oh, I'm just merely an a office worker. I go to and just, you know, I, I work hard. To support my family. No, it's more than that. If you glorify the Lord through your integrity, the people see you, not because of your religiosity, but because something different about saltiness in you. They don't have to manage you because you answer to God. That is a glorious accomplishment for God. The problem is when things are not happening fast or things are not going our way. Will I trust God's sovereign providence and look to God and become a servant to God first? Secondly, the second mark of David's leadership was that he sought the good of his people as a shepherd and leader of God's people Israel. The second part of verse 12 and chapter 5, David had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. What he meant is this is not a political strategy or, or jargon or slogan. of a lot of political movement. This was his aim. His aim came from his identity because God called him, yes, to be king, power, with the power, but calling was to shepherd, to be the shepherd and prince, prince meaning leader, of God's people. 
So applying to our, our days right now, rather than thinking about my own success and self-centered, impatient way of looking for, looking out for my best, if we really seek the good of the people whom we serve, the little group that you serve, and a church that you serve, you're answering to the calling of God. You're keeping the integrity of God's calling of you. And third and last lesson, the third mark of David's leadership was that he sought, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. Okay, just go with me. Don't look at it. <laughs> the third mark of David's leadership was that he experienced God's favor as a fruit of God's presence with him. So notice that the blessing of David, blessing on David and David's leadership was not the first thing, but the last thing as a fruit of God-centered leadership. Okay, what do I mean by that? Even in our church right now. God, we pray for your blessings. We help us to experience your blessing. Give us place to meet. You know, take care of this problem. Then we will glorify God. Then we will seek the good of our people. And even this community. But David's leadership was kingdom first, God's reign first, God's glory first. And that's seeking the good of the people. And lastly, as a sign and confirmation, experiencing God's favor. So that's why it takes faith to be a Christian leader. Will you trust God that blessing will come? The seeking God's glory is not going against your happiness and your joy that you have to choose one or the other. Actually, in reality, if we seek God's glory first, we will end up meeting the most treasured joy Experiencing God's favor beyond what we can experience. The only the who only those who experienced by faith could testify that. My time's up, so I'm going to close with this Alan Redpath. From his book, one of the books that I'm following together in this series is uh, David in the making of uh, Man of God. His, his study on life of David, which is absolutely insightful, 
along with the Eugene Peterson's book. So I shared this in closing. What happens when Jesus is king? Look at our text for a moment. What happened when, Jesus, when David was king? The conquest of Jerusalem, which had baffled the Israelites through their whole history, became amazingly easy when David was king. One of the first evidences of the enthronement of Jesus Christ in our lives will be that deeply entrenched habits of evil will be put under subjection to our reason Lord. Oh, this is inside. Who will inhabit that temple of the Holy Spirit? You are body and mind. Uh, that stronghold of sin which has defied our best efforts that has that which has caused us many a heartache and many a tear and many a feeling of remorse and frustration that which has almost made us give up the fight altogether. How wonderful when Jesus becomes king, it is put under his feet. He comes into our lives to establish his kingdom, to inaugurate it, by giving us the first taste of deliverance and victory over the power of inbred sin. You see that? He is taking this as an application in our own spiritual life. When Jesus becomes king, when you let Jesus become king, the things that you struggle, almost impossible things, becomes easy. Because he's the victor. He's the king that has power over all things. And my prayer for each one of us, as well as corporately our church, is that we will see the importance of that order of our attention. Glory of God first. The good of the people. The community and experiencing God's favor, God's blessing, not the other way around. May God lead us to real experience of this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. And once again, it is timely for many of us personally, but also as, a, as the church, uh, as our church looks for resolution for the city's zoning issues, whether we could continually meet in this place, whether we are to find someone somewhere else. We look to you, not looking for blessings first. We wholeheartedly, Lord, we want to see your glory through our utter dependence on you. And teach us to exercise the leadership that follows David's example in our work, in our home, as well as in our church. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.